0: Uh, we're going to be reading from God's word this morning. Uh, it'll be Second Peter, chapter one, verses one to 15. If you're able, would you just stand as we do this? Um, that's Second Peter, chapter one, verses one to 15. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world um, because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective Or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able to at any time to recall these things. This is the word of the Lord. Maybe may be seated.
1: Would you join me in prayer? Father, we have heard your words, and we've also, Lord, heard from Peter. And we ask, uh, as we gather together, as you've called us here, that you, by your anointing, Lord, would uh, change us and transform us ever, ever more to be more like Jesus. So we give you our hearts, and we pray, Lord, that you would shape us and mold us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, after 10 weeks of going through the Apostle Peter's first letter uh, to Asia Minor, to the churches that were going through persecution, we will step into Peter's second letter, which was written to the same people. It's about five years later. Um, Peter is writing this letter while he's in Rome, he's in prison, he's about in his early 70s, and he's waiting to be executed. Tradition tells us that not too long after this was written, he was taken outside the city of Rome, alongside the road called the Ostian Way, and he was crucified upside down. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle, to Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith and equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and our Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. This is the introduction uh, to Paul's letter. This is kind of the framed introduction we see throughout Scripture. And in his introduction, Peter tells us four things. First, he tells us that he is the author of the letter. Second, Peter tells us that how he viewed himself within the body of Christ. He describes himself as both a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. The conjunction of these two together puts Peter in one of the most unique circles in history. Peter was one of the twelve men who were called together for this special relationship with Jesus. And he was also given a special commission within that group, he tended to be the leader. In a sense, it was kind of a high and holy position. Yet Peter humbly saw himself as not only an, an apostle with a high rank, but he saw himself as a servant, as a slave. And Peter's viewpoint gives us perspective to any position that we have in the kingdom of God and in the church and even in life. It doesn't make any difference your post, your position, or your responsibility. All of us ultimately are servants. Amen? Really quiet today. It doesn't make any difference about how we see ourselves, who we are, what we've done, what kind of education we have how successful we are and where we come from, we are servants. And we should see that in ourselves in whatever capacity God calls us. We see that in Jesus' life when he said, the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Peter also tells us in the introduction that he addresses the letter to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. By ours, Peter means equal standing between God or before God for all of us. So everyone, again, we're in the same boat. All of us have equal standing before God. Peter uses the word faith here in the sense that we would use it if we said, what kind of faith do you have? Or rather, what do you believe? Peter is uh, writing these things because during the persecution of these churches in Asia Minor, false prophets and false teachers were still invading the church. And he put this right at the beginning of his letter because he wanted the church to remember that a Christian is someone who believed in the things that the apostles believed. Now there are many people today who call themselves Christians. And they're very gracious people, very loving people, but they don't believe what Jesus' apostles taught. They're not Christians. Our faith is not grounded, unless it's grounded in the apostolic teaching of the apostles, because the apostles wrote what Jesus said. And A Christian is someone who believes what the apostles wrote, and doesn't reman- again, doesn't matter who we are, what we believe, what our tradition is, if we don't believe what the apostles wrote down for us, we're not Christians. Peter wants us to know that, and he's going to bring this up over and over again. And we'll see later on, next week and even the week after, how this is affecting the church. In his introduction, Peter also tells us God's purpose and God's desire for the people who he was writing may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So now, in these words, Peter is not merely talking about our knowledge about God. He's talking about our knowledge of God in how we know him in a personal relationship with him. Now, that term is used in a way that there's no doubt that's what he's saying. Peter uses the concept of knowledge seven times in this letter. So he's making a point to describe what kind of supernatural relationship that Christians are to have with God through Jesus Christ. Peter points that out when he declares, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. In other words, our supernatural relationship with God through Jesus Christ is the foundation is is the catalyst is the is the source by which by which we experience the grace of God and experience the peace of God so how is it that we can lay hold of the grace of God and experience the peace of God it comes through the knowledge of God that we can know in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ while these you, these words would have been of great encouragement for those who were experiencing the pain and struggle, and suffering a persecution for their faith, Peter's intent here is deeper, deeper than what he even said. We see this if we take a deeper look at it. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And then the next verse says, His divine power has granted to us all things to pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him, there you go, there it is again, that knowledge, to the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. In other words, Peter is telling us that the grace of God that gives us the peace of God is the divine power of God that is given to us when we have a supernatural, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's a mouthful, but that's, that's deep. But that's praiseworthy too, amen. More simply put, the grace of God is the power of God we receive when we come to faith in Jesus. Now, most of us don't think of grace as a power; we think of it as a as a attitude of God towards us. So we say, "What, what do we say about God's grace?" Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. So that's what we kind of believe. It's an attitude and it's an action. Well, that is true, but the grace of God is much more than that. The grace of God is also a divine empowerment of God that works within us, which we don't deserve. But we usually don't talk about that too much, but it's all over the place in the Bible. We see that in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we do so by the empowerment of God's grace. What does Paul say? For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works that so no one may boast. In 1 Corinthians 15, 9 and 10, Paul confesses that everything he is and everything he does is done by the power of God's grace. This is what he says. I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the Church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me is not in vain. On the contrary, I have worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me." He's telling me the power of God's grace is who he is and it's everything that he does. Scripture gives us evidence of the power of God's grace. We read of that in Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, where Paul speaks of the power of God's grace helping us live for God as we we follow Jesus. Therefore, my beloved, Paul writes, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. Jesus himself spoke of the power of God's grace in the face of the constant desperate need we have for God's power in our lives. In John 15, 4 and 5, Jesus said, Abide in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches." Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. He's confessing, Jesus says, that he even needed the grace of God. In our text for this morning, Peter tells us, uh, tells the churches of Asia Minor, and he tells the churches in Puerto Bernie, how we can lay hold of the power of grace that will give us God's peace in the midst of the fallen world that we live in. God's grace in Jesus Christ is the source of godly living in a corrupt world. In verses 3 and 4, Peter says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. In these words, Peter describes the process by which the divine power of God's grace can be lived out in our fallen world because we have this supernatural power of grace relationship with Jesus Christ. Now he tells us, four things about the process. First of all, Peter says that the divine power of God is the thing that accomplishes everything. Uh, In one sense, everyone in the world wants to tap into the power of God because we've all been created in the image of God. So deep within our hearts, there's an intuitive kind of draw to power. The problem is we're in a fallen world. And so for us to want that power, well, it's it's actually the the source of all of our problems too. Um, Secondly, Peter tells us that the divine power of God's grace has to do with life and godliness. The divine power of God's grace affects every area of our lives, not only in the sense of the observable, visible but also the unobservable, invisible spirit. That means there's, there's no realm in our lives, brothers and sisters, where the power of God's grace is irrelevant. Whether it be physical, emotional, intellectual, spiritual, the power of God's grace is at work in all the deep corners and crevices of our souls. In the midst of all the issues and struggles and situations and circumstances we go through in life, the grace is, God. The power of God's grace is there. The third thing Peter tells us about the divine power of God's grace comes, he tells that it comes through the knowledge of him who called us. There's that term, the knowledge of God, that talks about the supernatural relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. This is how we uh, communicate in a sense. The relational knowledge of God is Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And we know that because by the power of God's grace, he rose from the dead. The fourth thing Peter tells us is that the divine power of God's grace has everything to do with our destiny through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Now the word glory here means uh, value and worth. And in the New and Old Testaments, glory is The word means weight and heaviness, giving a sense of extreme uh, great importance. So what Peter is saying here is that the one who calls us called us to something of great importance that has extreme heaviness and worth. He also tells us we're called to God's excellence. This is a term that uh, comes out of a word in the Greek that means the mastery of life. So... Peter is saying, the one who has called us, has not only called us to extreme importance and worth and value, but it's also someone who's calling us to do, join in him with being the master of life. He's the creator and the sovereign God and the king who rules over all. And what he's saying here is, that's our destiny too. We're being drawn to that place, ultimately. where We're going to share that throne. It's most likely, I think, while Peter was writing these words here, that he was uh, still thinking about his own life when he was supernaturally called to Jesus Christ. If you remember, Peter's brother Andrew went down to the Jordan River where he found John the Baptist preaching, and John pointed out Jesus as the Lamb of God. And uh, from there, Andrew went home and said to Peter, Peter, we have found the Messiah. And Jesus then called Peter into his relationship with him, And for the next three and a half years, they traveled together throughout Palestine. And Peter saw, in a very personal way, the power of God's grace displayed before his eyes every day. Jesus sent Peter out onto the sea and taught him how to handle storms. Jesus is a mastery when it comes to the storms of life. Jesus fed them when they were hungry and he broke bread when there was none. He taught them that he's the one who ultimately can supply for their needs. And throughout those those years, that three and a half years, those twelve men who had been called into the supernatural relationship with Jesus ultimately learned what their destiny was. What we know is Jesus commissioned these men not only to know him, but also to write down the words that we are reading today. Through that supernatural relationship. These scriptures were passed on to us so that God's promises that we can know Christ and we can know new life can be not only for us, but for the people today and for tomorrow. Imagine being one of Jesus' apostles. Imagine having the supernatural personal relationship with Jesus Christ that the apostles have. They could, they could walk with him and talk with him and see him in action. But what Peter is saying here today in these words that he wrote for us, he's telling us that we do have that. We do, right at this moment, have a supernatural, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen? By the divine power of his grace, we have the same relationship. We have the same power. We have the same capacity to live out our lives for God like the apostles when we surrender our hearts and lives to Jesus as Lord and Savior. All in accordance with the word of God by which he has granted to us, we read, his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. We do come to know the power of God's grace in his precious and great promises of God through the word of God because it's been passed down to us. Peter goes on to say that it's not merely enough to possess the word. He says even more important, important, that the word of God must possess us. We must become, he says, partakers of the divine nature. Not just readers, but partakers, having this become part of our lives, central to our lives, giving us all the guidance and power we need. The term sinful desire here means to be preoccupied with sensual things. Now, sensual things in themselves are not wrong, but to be preoccupied with them is wrong. And we are living in a culture that is infected with constant preoccupation of sensuality. We must not just possess the Word, we must be possessed by it. And Peter then tells us how that can da- how that can happen in our lives. He writes, "For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Where there is true spiritual life in Jesus Christ, there will be growth by the power of God's grace. The born-again faith we have in Jesus is not the end of our destiny, it is the very beginning. God gives us all the grace we need to live godly lives for him, but we are to exercise and be diligent in our faith before he provides for us. We are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so we see here, Peter lists seven grace-empowered characteristics of a godly life. But we must not think of them as stages of development. God gives us all the grace we need in our lives to do it. Um, The word supplement here. It doesn't mean necessarily add, but it means to supply generously. In other words, we are to develop these qualities, not separately from each other, but all together, in a sense that when we work on one, the other one's working too. So I'll read these once again. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, And steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Now, I'm not so sure it would be helpful for me to take time to define each one of these words. I'm pretty sure most of us know what virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, affection, and love means. But that's not the point for Peter, The point for Peter, what he's trying to make, the point is, is not so much about defining words as it is that we need to start exercising our faith by getting to work, by working out our salvation with fear and trembling, by working out each and every one of these seven characteristics of God's grace in our life so that God can get to work inside of us by the power of his grace, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Peter's not saying here that we have to try harder. Peter's not saying that. What he is saying that is he is assuming that the life of God through this supernatural personal relationship we have with Jesus is in place, is already in us. What he's saying is, now act on that. Yeah, you have it, do it. Let the life of God that you've been giving through the crucified and risen Jesus, let it express itself in your life. Knock off the constant preoccupation with sensual things in the world. Let the word of God possess you. Let the God be God inside of you. Peter then speaks of three evidences of this spiritual growth when we do this. And those evidences are fruitfulness fruitfulness, and security and vision. For in these qualities, for if these qualities are yours in increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's where we see fruitfulness in those of us who act on our faith. Christian character is not only an end in itself, it's also a means to the end. The more we become like Jesus, the more the Holy Spirit can use us in our witness and in, in, in living for them. Peter tells us that a Christian that's not growing is ineffective and unfruitful. The knowledge of Jesus Christ is producing nothing of the kingdom of God in their lives. Fruitfulness is not about skills or abilities or personalities. It's about becoming more and more and more and more like Jesus. Those who are fruitful have the kind of character and conduct that God can trust with his blessing. They are fruitful because, by the power of God's grace, they are faithful in cultivating the character, qualities of virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. Not perfectly, but constantly trying more and more to be more like Jesus. Vision, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind. Having forgotten that, he was cleansed from his former sins. Now, nutritionists tell us that diet can certainly affect our vision, and that's truly sure in the spiritual realm of our lives. In John three three, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. But God's Word also says when we get those spiritual eyes, it's, Im- it's, in- it's important for us to continue to develop that vision. The uh, phrase nearsighted here in the Greek is pretty much a, an exact uh, wording of cannot see far off. It's a picture of here of somebody who's squinting their eyes and trying to, trying to see too far in a sense. The problem is uh, here, here in the churches is we are easily influenced uh, by the independent, entitled-minded, rights-oriented, prosperity-saturated culture that we live in. We do often become nearsighted and sometimes blind because we forget that the kingdom of self is not the kingdom of God. Some churches are so focused on their own wants they fail to see the desperate spiritual needs of their neighbors and those in their community. In John four thirty five, Jesus said, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Brothers and sisters, there's way too many people walking around Port Alberni, whose eyes are closed to Jesus. We need to go. Thirdly, security. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. For in this way, there will. We richly provided for you, an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is true if we walk around with our eyes closed, we will stumble. But when we are growing, uh, we will grow in the power of God's grace. And we will walk confident, knowing that we are secure in Christ. It says that we will not fail or fall. It is not our profession of faith that guarantees that we are saved. It's our progression, progressing, not professing. Those who claim to be Christians but whose character and conduct give no evidence of spiritual growth are simply deceiving themselves. And I think we can all do that at different times. Peter points out that calling and election go together. The same God who elects, the same God who chooses, is the same God who gives them the means to be called. The two must go together as Paul wrote in 2nd Thessalonians when he said but we ought always to give thanks to God for you brothers beloved by the Lord because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth to this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ Peter also tells us, my throat's not helping me today. Peter also tells us that election is no excuse for spiritual immaturity or for refusal to share the gospel. Some people say election is, well, what's going to be done is going to be done. We can't do anything. Look at what Peter says. Be all the more diligent. Be all the more diligent, which means literally make every effort. So he's telling people who are the elect to make that sure, make it sure, make every effort. So that means we're supposed to do it. We're supposed to continue to do what we're doing. Well, it is true God must work in us before we can do his will. It's also true we have to be willing to have him work, willing to do what he's going to do. Divine election is never an excuse for human laziness. laziness. The Christian who is sure of his or her election and calling will never fall, it says, but will prove by a consistent life that he or she is a true follower of Jesus. Though they will never always, never always, though they will not ever stay on the mountaintop, they will continue to climb back up. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The grace of God is the power of God we receive when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. And that's why we have this book today. At this point, Peter stops and takes a moment to remind and encourage those who he was writing He first reminds them to think about what he just told them. His first first sentence also reveals a concern that his flock is being led astray from the truths of the word of God by the voices of false teachers who sought to lure them away from their commitment to Jesus. But Peter had told them that they had become partakers of the divine power of God's grace and, and they were now channels of that grace which would would enable them to to overcome their circumstances. And having been born again, they were embarked on a path of spiritual maturity, a path that demanded heart and time and truth. As they matured in Christ, their lives had become fruitful, visionary, and secure. At the times when they needed to evaluate their spirituality, Peter encouraged them to take a look at their calling and their election. And they should not take their new life in Christ uh, for granted, but instead use the word of God as a mirror to hold it up to see if they are walking with Christ. He closes the section by telling them that he knew his life was drawing to an end. He knew that soon he would be gone. As a faithful pastor, Peter was preparing ways to ensure the gospel that would be heard and known to the next generation. And Peter, you did a good job. Our response to God's grace in our own lives should be lived out in our love for God and love for others. A true understanding of God's grace will cause us to aspire to godliness, not to selfishness. In view of our depravity, brothers and sisters, when our destination was eternal death, our response to God's grace can be no less than absolute and total in commitment to the one who has given us new life. The heart meaning of God's grace culminates in the form of Jesus Christ. Here, God came as man and lived with us. And then in one single act of violent grace, Jesus sacrificed his life so we could have a new life. The picture of a dying Christ pleading for mercy and forgiveness for her murderers, for his murderers, reveals the true depth of the grace of God. In the midst of our deepest struggles, when all seems lost, Jesus is there pleading our case. The power of the cross has no equal. The power of God's grace is Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. 'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear, the hour I first great that's people said